the key thing about legacy thinking and legacide is that it's not saying that you were wrong. It's saying that you're no longer correct. Welcome to the Tales from the Treehouse podcast. This show is powered by Missing Link, who has been saving the world one board audience at a time. So if you are looking for extraordinary results, then you have come to the right place because we are about to take you on a journey of leadership that will rock your world. Hey guys, welcome back to another cracking edition of the Tales from the Treehouse podcast. I have with me Don and Rich. So how's it, guys? How's it, guys? How's and, it, guys? <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about this whole thing called Legacide. Now, Rich, you literally wrote the book on it. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> and if you haven't bought the book, go buy it now. Uh, but seriously, on a serious note, I think it's an important uh, subject to cover in the context of leadership. For the specific reason that when you think about the word innovation, right, everyone's talking about it. And I suppose just in my, from my point of view, when people are talking about innovation, it generally means kind of like the shiny new stuff. But Rich, your book actually tables an entirely different philosophy. Yeah. So can I give you a bit of a, like maybe a backstory that led to it? So Don and I, how many years ago did we decide to start Think? 2008. So 2008, we, we have this idea. We decide we've got all these big ideas. People are going to bring us in creative brainstorms. And we thought we want to start this design company like IDEO, Frog Design. And it's going to be this innovation company. And basically, eventually, we're going to be the company that Apple comes to. And we're going to design the new iPhone or something like this. Like We were super excited. We had small dreams. <laughs> yeah. So small. So we would go out to companies. We'd go out to these companies and we'd say to them, hey, guys, we want to run these labs for you to come up with these big product ideas. But it turned out that every time that we wanted to do something big and new for them, we got all excited at the beginning of the lab. It turned out that, like, actually what they wanted or what they needed was something different. Yeah, so the um, the basic premise is the guys would come in thinking these big stuff. And through a series of just us asking questions and delving deeper into terms, because you have to find out what the hell is the problem, right? And where did this come from? And we continue to ask why did this happen and why did this uh, go the certain path to try to find this, this path to here. And it was always that bad decisions were made. Oh, no, not bad decisions were made. Decisions were made back in the day that solved a specific problem. Today, however, those decisions, the solutions were still being fulfilled, but the problems were very, very different. And so then we realized, wow, man, what a, this is fucking crazy. They're doing the same stuff, but the world has changed. So what happened is in every one of these labs, you know, three-hour lab that we run with a company, after the first hour and a half, so basically these labs, maybe I should contextualize that. It's we, we take on a problem. We'll say, okay, you got this problem that you want to solve. And we give them a quote and we say to them, okay, it's going to cost you X to solve it. However, if we only solve half of your problem, you only have to pay us half the fee. Right, That's the model. We're not selling time. We're selling fulfillment of a problem. So we'd facilitate these things, and we would always think, okay, these guys are coming on. We need some new innovation in this space. We need this. <laughs> and then what we do is we'd say, okay, well, let's start mapping out what the problem is. Why do you need this innovation? Blah, 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 blah. And then what we'd realize, and everybody laughed. There was that like horrible moment where it was like, we're not solving. We're not creating something new. We're stopping doing something old. And that almost always became the problem, that your innovation problem isn't about starting doing something new. Your innovation problem that you're struggling with, the reason you're not innovating is always, almost always because you need to stop doing something old. And in fact, the beautiful thing is it's actually quite hard for a big organization to innovate, right? In the traditional sense of make new stuff. But it's actually quite a lot easier for them to innovate in terms of stop doing something old. 
But the problem is, is they need a new lens on those old problems and they need to see it with new eyes. But it's also about uh, asking, getting someone else to ask those questions, right? So I'll give you an example. We were working with a steel company a few years ago and they uh, asked us to help them with the design of their uh, values and behaviors and sort of vision and mission and things because they were really stuck in a space. And so as we sold perspective, that's exactly what we, uh, what we went out to achieve. And through a course of asking questions about why this, why that, we started delving down one particular path. Now, it wasn't even close to working on the values or mission or behaviors or whatever, but somewhere along the line, someone said to us about um, this, this concept of not getting an order done in time. So they couldn't be the speed guys. They didn't really have that uh, going for them. They needed to find something else that's going to be different and then in that in turn then build our vision, mission, all that kind of stuff. And so the one story that they told us was this guy, um, that they missed a, a deadline of, of a delivery of a, a steel order because they couldn't get it to the workshop in time. Now, um, we said, what do you mean you didn't get the order done in time? It's, it seems a bit weird. Was it, was it the factory's problem or whatever? So they, they said, no, our factory's fucking amazing, right? They can get it done very, very fast. I said, what is the problem? I said, well, the problem is we, uh, when an order comes in, a phone call uh, comes into the office. Now, the office where the sales guys sit is probably about 100 meters from where their, their storage area is with all the steel. So a call comes in. The guy takes the order. He then uh, types it up, prints it, and puts it into a tray. And then the tray gets delivered via golf cart from the office 100 meters down the way to the warehouse, to the storage place. Now, we looked at them sort of like, with this very, very strange look on our face, I said, why, why then is, was the order uh, not fulfilled? He said, well, the guy was on lunch, right? <laughs> and it was, a, it was a hardcore, very, very tight deadline needed to get done, and they lost the order. And we're like, guys, do we not see that there's a bit of a problem here? Now, 40 years ago, Matt, this was uh, implemented in the business, and it totally made sense. Right, a guy moving from one to the next because it was before they had implemented faxes or any kind of digital. Uh, uh, so you like guys in wimpy walk around in those big bloody uh, PDAs and then you know jot stuff down and then the griller gets his thingy, the coffee station gets their thingy. That all exists, but they didn't think about changing the solution. They put something in place and then that was done. So the outcome then we 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 came up with a behavior of burning the golf cart. Right? What are the golf carts that exist in this business? And there's a bad process, stuff we've put in place long ago that needs to change. And it was uh, implemented through through the entire organization. And they can say, guys, this is a golf cart. We need to fix this. And everyone had the um, uh, permission to be able to say that. Selling innovation, in my view, is actually probably one of the hardest things to do. If you put it in the frame of this being something new for the business, for the simple reason, though, like I, I know from experience, when you're trying to sell something new to the business, let's say that the, the business itself is making money hand over fist. Why would they change? Right? They're making money. Everything's cool. So why must we do anything new? Contrary to that, if the business is bleeding and hemorrhaging cash, how can they justify investing in something new? And I right. think, and it's almost an impossible sell. But burning your golf cart, right, or finding the golf carts that you want to burn in your business is such an easier thing. And it almost starts to talk 
to something along the lines of a marginal gain strategy, uh, where effectively it's what um, the British cycling team have done to dominate sport for so long, where you change the 1% and all the 1% end up to, add up to a really compelling kind of hockey bell curve, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, so I guess, it, I guess I really love this point around just stop fucking doing something old, right? Uh, speaking of doing things old, let's talk about periscopes. <laughs> Right, yeah. So, for example, I uh, heard <laughs> periscopes, interesting thing. Uh, periscopes were actually first designed like 1430 uh, by Johannes Gutenberg. I don't think he invented them, but he was using them to actually help people. He would give them to people at church gatherings, religious gatherings, so that they could see over the crowd. But anyway, fast forward, we all know what a periscope looks like. It's got those two handles, and um, you stick your head and your eyes against it. And what we actually read about the other day was that they've now gone digital. So they've got these big screens, and they give these guys these big, expensive 38,000 Lockheed Martin joysticks. But it turns out joysticks are quite cumbersome ways to control things. Now, what happens is typically we think, you know, let's go to R&D and let's try all these new things. And what's the best way to control a periscope? And then some guy at the company who was, who was commissioned said, wait a minute, why are we trying to reinvent this? This has been done. We know how to control stuff. If you control a periscope in a submarine video game, you use the submarine joystick controller, you know, the Xbox controller, and you do that. That's so easy. Why aren't we doing it? So the jury rigged a joystick to control an actual submarine and it worked brilliantly. So much so that in November 2017, the USS uh, Colorado is actually being fitted with the Xbox controllers. The difference, minutes to learn versus hours and $38,000 instead of that is now $30. That's minute. crazy, man. Hey. Now, the legacy there for me is that we always think that we have to create something proprietary. We think we have to create something new. So there's almost several principles of legacy. You know, bad first iterations. The idea is one of them, for example. The idea that we buy into a concept or we try something once and we say this is terrible and then we never go back to it. So uh, I used to drive like some fancy cars and I had this uh, dual uh, gearbox and the one car I had basically had two gearboxes that worked simultaneously and it was automatic and it worked amazingly and i used to speak to people and i would say oh no i prefer an automatic car to a manual and they'd be like oh automatics are crap they're so clunky they're so terrible and, and the they're truth so was, slow they're so slow everyone always said no automatics are so slow now there's no doubt that my gearbox where when i'm in first and the other one's in second already and then when i go in it moves to second the other one's in third already there's no doubt that this sequential gearbox is faster than a human being it's instant but the problem is they tried an automatic car when they first came out in the you know 90s or whatever it was. It probably came out earlier, but when they first tried it, it was shit. And so then they felt, well, they, their mindset was automatic cars are bad. So then they never wanted to go back to them. Now, now unless you're an absolute crazy hobbyist driver, wasting time, you know, you, it's harder to send a tweet while you're driving when you're, uh, uh, you know, having to control the gear stick. <laughs> but, but the... There's, it's nonsensical, but we buy into this idea that we tried it once years ago and it didn't make sense. And so we won't do it going forward. That's like one of these bad first iterations. Like don't let bad first iterations put you off. You have to retry things. That software you tried in your business six months ago, try it again now. Turns out they've not been sleeping. They've been developing further. You know, the amount of times we'll go and we'll suggest something to a company with the podcasts and they'll say, oh, you know, we actually tried a podcast a few years ago. Nobody listened. A few years ago, you know, that was then. It's a different world we live in now. And so, um, yeah, we need to act accordingly. Uh, can, it sounds to me like a good point to talk about the solution trap, 
right? Because it's kind of like the solution trap there was automatics are bad. And it's not exactly the same reference, but it kind of feels like that. So for instance, uh, it's on a, you fell in love with the solution of a manual car, not the fact that an automatic can get that job done better today. Well, I suppose in that case is you, you thought that an automatic car was crappy and then that stuck in your mind. Because growing up, I only knew grannies who drove automatics and it was because uh, it was because that they had to focus on just one thing and that was steering and looking at the road uh, and not having to worry about gears, right? That was my interpretation. And then jumping into an amazingly uh, powerful automatic car is I can't dream of going back to buying a, a manual vehicle anymore. Even on a bike, it's like I'm very, very lazy. I just want it to work and it does. So I was having to get a trailer door fit, fitted in my house in Cape Town to block off the upstairs for my, uh, you know, when we were sleeping because I travel a lot. And when I arrived there, the roof is sloped. When I arrived there, the, the door was, the gate was installed, but there was a gap at the top. And I sent a photo to the guy of this trailer door with a big gap at the top, literally like a big gap. And so you climb up the trailer door and you could climb through the gap. It wasn't even difficult. It was like massive. So I sent this photograph to the guy. I said, what is this? He said, it's the gate you ordered. And I said to him, but I'd never ordered a gate from you. I ordered, you know, I wanted to keep my family safe. And your solution to that problem was the gate, but you failed. And what happened was Trelidor had fallen in love with the idea that a slam lock gate, you know, they'd fallen in love with the solution when the original problem they were solving with a slam lock gate was, if you remember that original advert, that woman running through the garden and then she ran into the patio door and she slammed the door shut and the criminal was stuck outside. Now that's, that's the problem they were solving. Their solution was a gate that slams itself shut in a rush. Fast forward, you know, however many years to my situation, they've given me a rushing slam locking gate in a house, which I actually, that's a bit I didn't necessarily need. In fact, when you have children upstairs, you don't really want a gate that automatically locks. You'd almost want to be able to lock it yourself. We weren't creating a panic room. We were saying, we want to go to bed at night, lock our house and make sure that nobody can get in. And what that happened was they fell in love with their solution and they forgot about the problem. And that's the solution trap, that we think that we're in the business of the solution that we have instead of understanding that what we are in the business of is the problem that we solve. So let's look at presentations. When I started Missing Link in 1997, 20 years ago now, uh, people used to overhead transparencies and PowerPoint was very rudimentary and really bad and nobody knew how to use it. So, but way back then, we were basically, everything that we suggested and everything we offered was revolutionary. It was new, less, you know, text on a slide, more pictures, more things. And people were buying into it. And our business was, uh, you know, it started, it was an effort at first to explain to people, you know, that we could do this. But once they bought into it, then we fell in love with our solution. And our whole progress was built on the fact of, can we sell it, you know, faster? Can we deliver it quicker? You know, what can we do? But we hit a plateau. And I couldn't understand why, because we were still doing the same thing. And then I realized that the plateau that we hit was the fact that we were still doing the same thing. You see, we're now living in 2007, solving problems like it was 1997. But up to that, not everyone had seen a TED Talk, or like maybe, maybe you know, 2010. Everyone had seen a TED Talk. Everyone had seen Steve Jobs give an amazing keynote. You could use your smartphone to make a better presentation in Haiku or in something, you know, in any one of these online apps than we could have delivered 10 years before, but we were still selling that product. 
And we realized, wait a minute, people no longer have a slide design problem. They now have a story structuring problem. And it took us a lot to realize we have to stop understanding that we are in a design business. Design is a small part of what we do. And what we actually are in is helping people speak and deliver their content better. So whether you have an internal studio that can make your slides or not, is it relevant to us? Have you structured your story well? Have you, uh, you know, got your speaking to the point where people will really want to listen? And that's the area that we knew that we had to focus on more. So we had to sacrifice parts of what we did before in the name of solving new problems. And the most, you know, you get bonus points. So you started off solving a problem, then you refined your solution, and now you solve new problems. You get bonus points if you're solving new problems that people don't know yet they have. Um, in an episode of your show you did with George Minnie from AutoTrader, you guys brought up that concept quite a lot. It's a bit like the faster horse problem, you know, Henry Ford that you quoted. So if you can solve new problems, you win. I think from our side, like problems move, you know, and that's the, that's the actual key thing. From a leadership perspective, how do you know when your problem has moved to a significant enough degree so that you now need to define a new solution for that problem? You've already, you've, in other words, you've originally solved that thing. It's shifted that's 30 the degrees. Point. Yeah. The problem moved because you solved it. When Trelidor invented Samlock Gates and they, then the world saw, hey, this is a viable way to stop that problem. Then other people copied them. That original problem had gone. Slamlock gates was no longer a problem we had. Yes, you know, because it was a very viable solution that was affordable that you could get from, you know, any hardware store. But they were still acting as if they did. So there's, a, there's an amazing book by uh, Karen Firestone. She's a um, CEO of an asset management company in the, in the States. She wrote a book called Even the Odds. And I'm paraphrasing, but she basically talks about this principle of um, people say, oh, we don't want to do stuff differently, right? Because that's risky. But you make that decision with the stupid, stupid philosophy of that everything is going to stay the same outside of you, right? So you're going to keep doing the same stuff, but everything else is changing. And it's a beautiful lesson for people to, to take. And as we said at the beginning, is to continue then. The only way to do that is to keep on asking why, right? Why are we doing this? Why did we start doing this in the first place? And it's a hell of a ask because you have to look at the entire business or you have to then almost deputize people throughout, depending how big your business is, to look at different areas, look at different things, look at different processes and keep on asking, why did we do this? Why are we doing it this way? And does it need to change? You know, Don hit on a big point there as well. Yes, it's a great way to say, like in Missing Link's case and Trellidor's case, what did we solve for our clients, right? And our actual product is the problem that our clients facing still the same. But actually, you know, it, to go back to the steel story is it's all about your internal process as well. That accounting practice you put in place then, you know, the, the, the questions that the way the structure I think you always have to do is you have to look at everything in your business. Everybody in the business should be told to do this, this thing. And it's asked three questions. The first question is this, what problem were we solving when we started doing this? Right? So, uh, did your accounting practice or procurement practice? We were solving this problem. Cool. Does that problem still exist? That's your second question. And then you'll look at it and you think, well, not really. Okay, well then stop doing it. If that's the problem that you put in place when you solve that, then stop doing it. But if you turn and say, yeah, it does still exist, then why ask your second question or the third question? And that is this. 
is this still the best way possible that we could be solving that with technology we have available today? And if the answer is no, find a better way. If the answer is yes, well done, you're the 1%. Right? And one of the core, core, core realizations, and I think when it really clicks for people, is people don't like changing things because they're also worried maybe it's something their boss put in place. And they feel like they're saying to their boss, you were wrong. But the key thing about legacy thinking and legacide is that it's not saying that you were wrong. It's saying that you're no longer correct. So you were right, and that being right was amazing for the last 20 years Turns out somebody invented new technology yesterday. Your way is no longer the best way. We need to find a better way. Well, a great example is what we're recording on right now, right? So we've got a mixing desk here. We've got three microphones. This is a solution for a problem. The problem was how do we get podcast audio out to a community that you guys serve, right? Or in my, or in my case, a, a kind of a global listenership. Anyway, long story short, you're not fucking around with this app called Anchor, and I'm going to play around with it as well. But basically, it allows you to essentially do this, but all through your phone, right? You can add music, you can do take phone calls, you can do all this kind of stuff. So the solution trap for me would be to say that what we're currently using here is a, as a, from an, a, a hardware perspective is the solution moving forward, but actually it may not be, right? So for me, the question is, am I still correct in this being the right solution for podcasting moving forward? Is that fair to say? Right, and, and so when you understand that all of this gear and even the format of a podcast is a solution, that you had to solving a problem. And the underlying problem you were solving is getting smart people's information uh, into people's eardrums, right? You realize that people have downtime when they're driving, when they're things, when they're not in front of video, when they, when they can't do things in social media, where they need to be learning. And you've, your job, your problem is always to say, is this the best way that I can get the audio from this person into your head? And, you know, Matt Brown Media 20 years from now might be saying, no, what the best way to now do it is to take a Neuralink, to take data from thoughts from Don's brain, and to, to plug it straight into your head when you need it. And we joke about that now, but the truth is, this low fidelity method of me having to say words, and you having to translate those words, you know, in your brain, create meaning for them, you know, that may evolve. Just, I uh, don't know whether you saw the Toys R Us went bankrupt. Uh, two weeks ago. For sure. So in, in 2012, they were a $12 billion company, a retail footprint of over 1,600 stores and a fulfillment partnership with Amazon. Five years later, they're bankrupt. So there are a number of reasons on the table here, apart from crippling debt, and there was a whole big fuck up where they effectively funded expansion. But there were two main reasons. The first one was that they literally did not innovate, right? And secondly, they literally did not believe in the internet, hence why they did fulfillment with Amazon. If they believed in the future of Toys R Us being an e-commerce play, I'm not saying that it should be, but if they believed that, they wouldn't have ever dealt with Amazon, right? So if in just five years, they've gone bankrupt. And I think this is probably a classic case that illustrates perfectly everything that we've just discussed. I want to take another example there of, you know, blockbusters. So first of all as well that, you know, I think what we'll find is Toys R Us, they've gone into basically like the almost the American equivalent of receivership. So they can restructure their finances and business and sort things out and they'll probably come back in a different form. I actually don't think retail as in a shopping mall is dead. I think that what will happen is that they will almost become showrooms. 
And so we'll still, everything will exist online. You'll buy online, you'll even deliver online. They won't even have to carry stock. But you'll go to a store, you'll try on things. You'll say, oh, I really like this. They'll try size garments. They'll show you how it looks. And then you, because kids still want to browse and play with toys and it's tactile things. But the idea of having this much big warehousing and things like that in order to do it doesn't make sense. So I think we are trying to find the new model for retail. And there's certainly legacy there. But let's look at Blockbusters, because Blockbusters is another business. These guys, you know, video shop, late fees, all of these things. Now, we know that's a legacy business model. And, of course, Netflix, they come up and they say, no, this is ridiculous. Uh, you, you know, Reed Hastings was so frustrated he had to pay, like, you know, 50 bucks late fee on a video. And he thought, this is, uh, you know, absolutely crazy. I shouldn't have to do that. Although, in his case, he should, because he'd taken away the video shop's right to rent that video. But anyway, he thought, well, it's just a video. Let's just make more. So he came up with the idea that we'd ship the videos to your house and then you could keep them as long as you wanted and there'd be no late fees. You send it back and get you another video. And that was absolutely amazing. And of course, put Blockbusters out of business, which was a legacy business. What was really exciting to me though was that they sat there and they thought, wait a minute, we we are, this is an incremental fix. So we've managed to build this amazing thing in a few years that's put our biggest competitor out of business but if we don't change in a year, we'll be out of business. And he then turned around and said, we need to make our own business model obsolete, stop posting bloody videos, and start streaming them because the internet's coming in. And this to me is a perfect example of a company who was able to see uh, the, the, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel was the oncoming train and to change before it happened. There's a really great quote that I really want to share at this at this time is by George Bernard Shaw and it goes quotes some look at things and ask why I dream of things and ask why not end quote so why I think is such an underrated question right and, and from a strategic perspective if you want to land on a rich insight from a story perspective or from a marketing or brand perspective if you think that all uh, trees are green then ask why you know, and then when you get to that level, you ask why from there again. And eventually you ladder down to a point where you find something that's really rich. And I guess if there was one takeout for our listeners here, it would be to keep asking why. So th the idea of that quote is, uh, doesn't make much sense because you need to continue to ask why. If you keep on wanting to do new stuff as experts, what we said at the very beginning of this episode, right, is that you look at those, people talk about the five whys, and if you eventually get down to the why, 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 you'll get to the root cause of the problem. And that's the basic premise. We ran a session a few years ago and it was, we honestly asked that one question. It wasn't even by design. Someone said something and they said, yo, it, it's, we've always done it that way, right? That beautiful saying. And then I said, why? And it steered the conversation completely in another direction. And we thought we were solving for maybe X plus three, but we realized it was actually, we needed to get down to X, but they didn't know that X was the original problem. And just by asking why we got down to that. Yeah, I was giving a talk uh, this week to entrepreneurs organization, and there was a guy who runs an AI driven kind of portfolio recommendation play for high net worth individuals and he was like yeah but you know ai and technology is very complicated and we structure so we've, we we crunch so much data it's almost impossible for for us to tell our story so i just said to him okay why and he well you know because uh i think it's just technology is quite difficult to talk about why uh, and then you see so do you see and he starts to get down to a point where actually it's actually the technology and the story is not the problem 
it's him and the way that he perceives the problem. Right, but also maybe when he started the business and AI wasn't part of our everyday language and something that we're all used to. We all use Siri, we all use Hello Google, okay, Google, things like that. And at that point, uh, you know, people didn't interact with AIs on a day-to-day basis. So his legacy was that maybe it was hard to describe. But now he can turn around and th- say things like, hey, you know how when you're dr- driving and your map refigures out using traffic that actually there's a better way to go there. Well, what we do that is we do that with your investments. We use the same kind of artificial intelligence thinking to look for roadblocks, traffic, predict how long it will take you to get to where you need to go, and we remap your solution around that. Now, that might be a a way to do it, but it might not have been possible before we all understood how easy it was to use Google Maps. So there you have it, guys. Keep asking why. And once you've asked why, ask why again. Thanks, guys, for your time today. What a great episode. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. And remember, if you would like to save your audiences from boredom and for all your leadership needs, check out msnglnk.com.